participate at all. Amen? Amen. Amen. If you have your copy of God's Word, I hope that you do. Please take it and turn with me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, we're going to look at verses 1 to 27 this morning as we are steadily making our way through John's Gospel. John chapter 11. Verses 1 to 27 is our text. And if you would, please follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you, going, are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go also, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would please help us now to have ears of faith and hearts that are ready to obey your word. Father, one of the worst things that can befall a Christian is that we become hearers of the word and not doers. And so we pray, Father, that we would not only hear the word of God today, but that we would then respond with faith, with obedience, with godliness, that your spirit would bear fruit, all to the praise of Christ's name. 
Father, please keep me from error. Please grant your church illumination now in the Holy Spirit that we would be able to discern what it is that you have revealed in the scriptures concerning Jesus Christ and concerning our life in him. Help us, Father. We pray that there would be no unfruitful hearing of your word today. We ask this by your grace and in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, perhaps the best way to begin this morning or the best place to begin this morning is at the very end of our passage. In verse 26, Jesus puts before Martha the question that overrules all other questions. Verse 26, do you believe this? Does Martha believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world for the salvation of sinners? Does Martha, whose heart is surely racked with grief and sorrow over the death of her brother, does Martha believe that death is not the end for those who trust Jesus? It's an incredible question. Do you believe this? Jesus asks her. In a way, that question is put before each of us this morning. Do you believe this? Understand that what John recounts in this chapter is nothing less than astounding. Lazarus, who is Jesus' dearly loved friend, dies. Martha and Mary, his sisters, are grieving his loss, hoping that Jesus could have prevented Lazarus from dying. And, and surely Jesus could have kept Lazarus alive if he had been there. But he wasn't. And Lazarus died. Except that Lazarus doesn't stay dead. We didn't read that part of the chapter today, but I'm sure you're familiar with it. Jesus, with the power of only his voice, raises Lazarus to life again. That's remarkable enough but Jesus presses things further. Do you believe this? Not only does he have the power to triumph over death, he even has the boldness to say that those who trust him will never die in the ultimate sense. Yes, people die as Lazarus does in this chapter, but even then, those who trust in Jesus will never die. That's why I say this chapter is astounding. Jesus raises the dead. That's incredible. And... He calls you to believe that he will raise you from the dead if you trust him. All of that, all of that is wrapped up in Jesus' question to Martha. It's also Jesus' question to us. It's Jesus' question to you. Do you believe this? I begin with Jesus' question today because that's the lens through which we're going to approach this entire passage. In the context of John's gospel, chapter 11 is the seventh and final sign of Jesus as the Messiah. It's the climactic display of his identity as the Christ. He raises the dead, which anticipates what will happen when Jesus gets to Jerusalem. He will rise from the dead. You should note there in your Bibles that Jesus' passion is right around the corner, so to speak. Jesus arrives in Jerusalem for the last time in the very next chapter, chapter 12. He gets to Jerusalem for the last time. In that sense, John chapter 11 is both climactic, it's the last sign, it's the seventh sign, it's the, it's the final sign. John 11 is climactic, and it's also transitional. It's John's way of helping you understand what is going to happen in just a few chapters when Jesus himself dies. 
That's how this text works in the flow of the gospel. And it's here that Jesus' question to Martha works kind of like a compass for us this morning. It helps us get our bearings in this passage. What is it that unites a person to Jesus who is the resurrection and the life? What is it that unites a person to Jesus? The answer is faith. Genuine, believing, saving faith in Christ. So when Jesus says to Martha in verse 26, Do you believe this? He's giving you the interpretive key to the passage, if you like. He's giving you the key that unlocks the meaning of what this whole entire scene is about. For all of its profound power, John chapter 11 is fundamentally a call to faith in Jesus Christ. At its core, this chapter is calling you to believe Him and to trust Him and to entrust yourself to Him. So that's going to be our focus this morning. That's what's going to give us our bearings. As we begin working through John 11, I want us to consider three truths from Jesus that encourage our faith in Him. If faith is the right response to what Jesus does, then what truth does Jesus give us that encourages our faith? That's where we're going to go today. There are three encouragements, three truths from Jesus. The first has to do with His love. You've probably heard the theme of love this morning. The first has to do with Jesus' love. The second has to do with His life. And then the third summarizes it by focusing on our confidence in the Lord. So that's where we're going. Love, life, confidence, all for the purpose of helping us trust in the Lord. Let's start then in verses 1 to 16 with the purposeful love of Christ. The purposeful love of Christ. Very quickly, we learn of the problem. Verses 1 and 2. Lazarus, Jesus' beloved friend, is sick. The family lives in Bethany, which is across the Jordan back towards Jerusalem. And this family is close to Jesus. They're so close that Lazarus' sisters expect Jesus to come and help them. Notice verse 3. So the sisters sent to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Jesus and Lazarus were dear friends, it seems. And based on that friendship, the sisters expect Jesus to respond. They know that Jesus loves their brother. And therefore, they expect Jesus to come and do something to help them. Jesus, however, does something unexpected. That's a good rule of thumb for reading the Gospels. Jesus typically does what's unexpected, like rise from the dead. That was supposed to be funny. (laughs) Jesus does something unexpected. He connects Lazarus' illness to a greater purpose. Look at verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Of course, we know that Lazarus does die in this passage. So what is Jesus talking about? What's his point? Well, Jesus connects Lazarus' illness with God's plan for the Messiah. Jesus connects Lazarus' illness with the Father's plan for His Son. Through this illness... God will display the glory of Jesus Christ. That's why Lazarus is ill. 
so that Christ's glory will be displayed. This is actually really important for understanding the passage. Jesus knows already that Lazarus will die. But ultimately, and more importantly, Jesus knows that Lazarus will rise again. Lazarus's death will be the stage, so to speak, upon which the glory of the Son of God is revealed to the world. Now, we should be clear at this point. When John uses the word glory in verse 4, you see it there in your Bibles, when he uses that word glory, he is not saying, he is not saying that Lazarus' illness is somehow praiseworthy. He is not saying that physical suffering is good. Illness and death are products of life in a fallen world. So there is no glory inherent in illness. Rather, John uses the word glory to describe the worth of Jesus Christ. That's what glory is in the Bible. It's the worth of something, the worthiness of something. So the glory in verse 4 is referring to the worth of Jesus Christ. Through Lazarus being ill and ultimately dying, the supreme worth of Jesus Christ is revealed. It's displayed for the world. So think of it this way. We're going to jump ahead to the end of the passage in order to explain the beginning of the passage here. Think of it this way. Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life, verse 25. He is the resurrection. That's the glory of his person. He is the resurrection and the life. But how does the world see that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Through Lazarus's illness, death, and subsequent resurrection. Lazarus shows the world what Jesus is like. That's what Jesus means when he talks about glory in verse 4. He is not saying that illness is a reason to praise God. He is saying that even this illness serves a greater purpose. The revelation of Jesus' worth to a world that desperately needs to see it. At this point in the sermon... Someone present today surely has an objection to what I just said. I am saying, just to be clear, I am saying that God's control extends even to things like illness and suffering and death and trials. God does not cause suffering per se. He is not the author of evil. But God is sovereign over suffering, including illness, hardship, trial, and death. That's what I'm saying. That's the view that I'm preaching. And surely someone here objects to this view of God. Surely someone is thinking, I don't know if I can believe in a God who ordains things like suffering and hardship and illness. I don't know if I can believe in that kind of God. I understand that objection. And we're going to unpack this more as we go through the sermon. But for now, for now, if this view of God concerns you, I would encourage you strongly to consider the alternative. Imagine a world where God is not sovereign over illness, suffering, and hardship. Imagine living each day thinking that chance rules your life. And that if something bad happens to you, well, it was just bad luck. 
Friends, I will argue that that view of the world is the terrifying one. Give me a world where everything is under God's providential control. I want to live in that world, even if I can't understand how how it always works, how God's control over all things always works with his purpose in my life. I'd rather live in that world because the alternative is terrifying. Chance is not good. God is good. In fact, the goodness of God, the goodness of God comes into focus in verses 5 and 6. Jesus, again, does something unexpected. But his decision is rooted in love. Notice verses 5 and 6. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Friends, the connection between those two verses is very significant. Let's note it carefully. Verse 5 tells you that Jesus loved this family. So you would expect verse 6 to say that he immediately rushed to Bethany. But that's not what happens. Instead, Jesus delays for two entire days. Why does Jesus delay? Precisely because he loves them. Notice the connecting word at the start of verse 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, Jesus writes. So, his love, verse 5, is the reason for his decision, verse 6. And what's his decision? He waits two days. Because he loves Lazarus, he waits. Because he loves this family, Jesus delays. What is going on here? If Jesus loves them, why wouldn't he leave immediately? If he loves them, why wouldn't he get there in time to stop Lazarus from dying? Why does he wait? Friends, think about what happens in the rest of the passage. By waiting, by waiting, Jesus is able to reveal himself as the resurrection and the life. By waiting, Jesus creates a situation where Martha's faith is displayed and becomes a testimony to the unbelieving people around her. By waiting, this is is incredibly hard to grasp. By waiting, Jesus allows this family to experience his love for them in a way they would not have known otherwise. So what looks like a delay to us is actually the love of Christ. Working out the goodness of His purpose for His people at this moment. What looks like a delay is actually the purposeful love of Christ. A question arises at this point, at least it does for me. You've probably learned that the way I study the Bible is by asking lots of questions. A question arises at this point. What if something prevents Jesus from accomplishing his good purpose? To ask it in a different way, how deep in reality is Jesus' commitment to do what is good for his people? That's an excellent question. And the next portion of the passage gives us the answer. John's going to show you how how unendingly deep Jesus' commitment is. He will not fail to do what the Father has given him to do. And this comes out in the exchange between Jesus and his disciples. 
It starts in verse 8. A lot of this exchange is self-explanatory. We're 11 chapters in, so you don't need me to help you understand the exchange between Jesus and the disciples. A lot of it is self-explanatory, so we're going to go quick. Follow along with me. Verse 8, the disciples, surprisingly, don't understand why Jesus wants to go back to Judea, considering the Jews just tried to kill him. Verse 12, the disciples also don't understand what Jesus means when he says that Lazarus has fallen asleep. If he's sleeping, won't he wake up, they ask? They don't understand. Jesus finally has to speak very plainly. Look at verses 14 and 15. He just tells them plainly, Lazarus has died. And at this point, Thomas, speaking for all of the disciples, thinks that the end has come. Verse 16. Well, we might as well go with him because this is it. We're all going to die now. If you've been reading through the Gospel of John, this exchange is is almost self-explanatory. The disciples don't understand. They need Jesus to speak very plainly. But in the middle of that exchange, there are two verses that we ought to note. In the middle of that exchange, we gain clear sight of Jesus' commitment. Jesus will not fail to do what the Father has given him to do. Look at verses 9 and 10. This is where you see how deep Jesus' commitment is. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. You could paraphrase those verses as Jesus saying, don't be afraid. You don't have to be afraid of going back to Judea. Walking in the light is a metaphor for doing the will of God. While walking in the darkness is opposing the will of God. So the one who walks in the light will not stumble because God will guard his steps. The one who's faithful to God doesn't have to fear that the goodness will fail because God will keep them. And Jesus' point in verse 9 is that he is the one who's walking in the light. He is the light of the world. So when he goes to Jerusalem, there's no need to be afraid. He's walking in the light. The Father is sending him to Jerusalem for this very purpose. And that means Jesus will not stumble. He will not fail. So the disciples don't need to be afraid. As long as they follow the light of the world, the Father will guard their steps with him. That's how deep Jesus' commitment is. Even if it means he faces suffering, he's committed to doing the Father's will, to walking in the light. That's really the point that I want you to see here. Jesus is absolutely committed to his people's good. So it's true that Judea is risky, but Jesus loves Lazarus. It's true that Jerusalem is full of darkness, but Jesus walks in the light. So there's no reason to be afraid. That's the overall point of verses 9 and 10. Nothing will prevent Christ from accomplishing his Father's purpose and doing good to his people. How deep is his commitment? It's all the way to the cross. We covered a lot of ground in just a few minutes there. So before we go to the second part of the sermon, I want to, I want to offer maybe just one takeaway for your life as a Christian, for my life as a Christian. When it comes to the love of Christ we ought to remember that Jesus' purpose is often bigger than what we can perceive to be happening at the moment. When it comes to the love of Christ, we ought to remember that Jesus' purpose is often bigger than what we can perceive at that moment. Think about Lazarus and his sisters. Jesus waits two days 
precisely because he loves Lazarus. What looks like a delay to us is actually the love of Christ working out God's purpose for his people. So, very practically, brothers and sisters, we ought to be very careful not to judge too quickly what Christ is doing in our lives. We ought to be very careful to not judge too quickly what he's doing. As the sovereign Lord, Jesus knows the beginning from the end. We don't. As the Son of God, Jesus understands more of God's purpose than we could ever understand. And therefore, we can trust Him. We can entrust ourselves to Him. Of course, that's difficult to do, isn't it? It's easy for me to stand up here and to tell you to walk by faith when trials come. But it's hard to actually do the walking. But friends, that's part of why God has given us his word. That's part of why he has given us his word that recounts what he's doing in the lives of real people. It's so that we can see the purposeful love of Christ at work in the lives of those whom he loves. The love of Christ that he has for this family in Bethany is the same love that he has for each and every one of his followers today. And that means his purposeful commitment to Lazarus is the same commitment he has to you and to me in our lives. When you can't see how it's possible that Christ is doing anything good in your life, go to his word. Go to the scriptures. Remember, faith feeds on the word of God. So even if you have to read this section of the Bible every day just to believe that God is true, even if you have to believe this passage every single day, do it. That's walking by faith. That's what it means to follow the Lord. And when that walking becomes difficult, remember the commitment of Christ in verse 9. He knows that Judea is dangerous, and yet he goes. Why? Because he will not be deterred from walking in the light and doing what the Father has given him to do. And that means, that means church, that he is committed to you and to me, just as he was committed to Lazarus. In fact, we can follow him just as he follows the Father. So, so trust him. I, I cannot stress this enough to you. In a way, this whole sermon has just one point. Here it is. Trust him. Trust the Lord. John 11 is calling you simply and clearly to trust Jesus Christ. Trust that he is good. Trust that his love for you will never fail. And even when you can't understand what he's doing... Trust that God's good purpose is being accomplished in the Lord Jesus. That's the purposeful love of Christ. It's on display with Lazarus, and it calls us to faith. Let's look at the second truth now that encourages faith in Christ. From verses 17 to 26. Here we see the powerful life of Christ. I just thought about the purposeful love. Now we look at the powerful life of Christ. So far, Jesus hasn't actually interacted with anyone from this family. That changes in verses 17 to 20. Again, John summarizes the scene. Look, at there, look there with me. Verse 17, Jesus arrives to find that Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. That's significant since, it's, since it eliminates the possibility of anyone misunderstanding what's going to happen in just a few verses. He can't be sleeping. He's been in there four days. He's really dead. Verses 18 and 19, many Jews from Jerusalem are present. They're mourning with the family. Again, that'll be significant next week 
when we see the fallout to the miracle. And then verse 20, of the two sisters, Martha comes first. Mary remains in the house. Jesus will talk to her next week. For now, the focus is on Martha and Jesus. And from the start, from the start, John emphasizes Martha's confidence in Jesus. Notice Martha's initial words, verse 21 into verse 22. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, at first it sounds like Martha is blaming Jesus, doesn't it? If you had been here, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have died. It sounds like she's blaming him, but that's not the right way to read Martha. John intends Martha to be an example of faith in the gospel. So she's not blaming Jesus. She's confident in him. Her second statement makes that very clear. Verse 22, Martha recognizes that Jesus is the one uniquely sent from God. And that means whatever he asks of God, God will do it. She's not blaming him. She's confident in him. Now, does that mean that she expects Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead? Maybe. But as we'll see next week, when Jesus tells them to open the tomb, it's Martha who says, he's been in there four days. It's going to smell bad. So maybe she thinks that he's going to raise Jesus from the dead. Whatever the details, she's clearly confident. At a minimum, Martha is confident that Jesus can deal with the situation. She's confident. We shouldn't minimize this. It's one thing to believe that Jesus can heal your sick brother. But that sick brother is now dead. And still, Martha's confidence holds firm. Even now, she says. I love those two words in this passage. Even now. It's an incredible phrase. Even now, after four days in the tomb. After the irreversibility of death sets in. Even now, Martha says, whatever you ask God, he's going to give you. She's confident. Jesus repays her confidence with a very matter-of-fact statement. I love this part of the, of the passage. Jesus is going to draw this dear woman out. He's so purposeful. He begins to draw out her faith. Look at his first words. They're very matter-of-fact. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Now, as readers of John's gospel, we know what he's telling her. We know that he's telling her he's going to raise her brother from the dead. We know that, but Martha doesn't. She thinks Jesus is referring to the general resurrection of the dead at the end of the age. I mean, look at verse 24. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Then comes the turn. With an incredible combination of clarity and tenderness, Jesus declares who he is. Look at verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus is the personal fulfillment of what God promised to do for his people. Martha believes in a general resurrection, verse 24. And Jesus clarifies that he is the resurrection, verse 25. In other words, God's promise to his people is more than an event. God's promise is a person. The Lord Jesus Christ. He is the resurrection and the life. Do you remember back in chapter 1 when John told us that in him was life and that life was the light of men? It's the same truth here. As the Son of God, Jesus Christ has life in himself. He does not simply give life. That's true. 
He is life. And this means that God's promise to his people is not an abstract thing or an event that happens to us. We are not waiting for God to take us to a place. We are waiting for God to bring us to a person, his son. And in seeing his son, we have everything. God's promise to us is his son given to us in union with him so that the life of the son becomes our life. So that the resurrection of the Son becomes our resurrection. Martha believes in a general resurrection. Jesus says, you need to believe in a personal Savior. I am the resurrection. To be raised on the last day, according to Jesus, you have to be united to Him. You have to be in Him, to use Paul's language in John. How does that happen, you ask? How can I be united to Jesus a man who lived 2,000 years ago. Well, you're united to him in the same way that Jesus called Martha to be united to him, through faith. Please don't miss the transition from verse 25, where Jesus declares his identity, to verse 26, where Jesus calls Martha to believe him. Do you you see the transition there? I am the resurrection and the life, verse 25. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. How are you united to Jesus? Answer, by faith. By faith, the believer is united to Christ so that physical death is not the end and spiritual death is overcome. These are profound considerations. This is above my pay grade to unpack in all of its entirety. We could spend a good bit of time this morning just thinking on eternal life from verses 25 to 26. But my main focus this morning is faith. Faith. I want you to note how helpful this exchange is for understanding genuine, saving faith. I'm going to use my own life as an example here. This is something that I always struggled with as a young person in church, understanding why faith led to salvation. I remember being told all the time when I was a kid that my works could never save me. I heard it all the time from the front of my small country church, Brother John. My works could never save me. But then I also remember being told all the time that I had to trust in Jesus to be saved. Works can't save me, but you have to trust in Jesus. So, my 10-year-old brain asks the question, is trusting in Jesus Christ a work that I have to do? Because if it is, how am I going to be saved that way? Because you tell me that my works can't save me. So is trusting in Christ a work? If my works can't save me, then what makes faith any different? This is what I asked all the time when I was a kid. Have any of you ever asked this question? Just somebody nod yes. Okay, good. I ask that question all the time. Here's the answer, at least in part. The power of faith does not rest in me. I am not the one who makes faith effective. The power of faith flows from the one in whom I trust. So faith doesn't take its power or effectiveness from the subject, but from the object, the one in whom I trust. This is why Jesus starts by saying who he is before he tells Martha that she needs to believe. He doesn't say, believe in me, I'm the resurrection. He says, I'm the resurrection, believe in me. The the object of faith, the one that we trust in, that's where 
the power comes from. Who Jesus is in, is in himself is the reason faith leads to salvation. That's a long way of saying faith saves because faith unites us to Jesus. It makes us one with him so that what he has in himself, he shares with me. My, my act of believing does not give me life. You are not born again because you trust in Jesus. You're born again, then you trust in Jesus. My act of believing does not give me life. My act of believing does not sustain my life. My act of believing does not guarantee my life. If that were true, our hope would be flimsy. The power of faith is that it unites me to the one who has life in himself, Jesus. To trust in Jesus is to be joined to him, united to him, so that all of his fullness is given to you, even his resurrection and his life. That's why faith saves. It's not because it's a work that I do, but because it unites me to the one who has life in himself. This is the promise that Jesus holds out to Martha and to us. This may sound crazy to you. Jesus' promise is more than you'll defeat death. Jesus' promise is you will have me. And I am life. And I'm the resurrection. He is the resurrection and the life, and therefore those who trust him will live because he lives. And so I just want to conclude right here. This is where we're going to wrap it up. We thought about the purposeful love of Christ. We just meditated on the powerful life of Christ, or at least we tried to. Where should that love and that life lead us? Third and finally, from verses 26 and 27, it should lead us to hopeful confidence in Christ. It should lead us to hopeful confidence in Christ. I want to keep pressing on this idea of what it means to have saving faith. At this point, Martha is our example. Praise God for the life and testimony of Martha. At the end of verse 26, Jesus asks her, Do you believe this? It's an incredible question considering her brother has just died. Do you believe this? Does Martha believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Such a powerful question. It pushes Martha from ideas to a person. It pushes her from affirming concepts to entrusting herself to the Savior. It's such a powerful question. Do you believe this? Notice Martha's reply, verse 27. She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. That's a remarkable picture of faith. Martha trusts in the person of Jesus. Did, did you catch the shift from Jesus' question to her answer? Jesus said, do you believe this? And Martha says, I believe you. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. Martha's confidence is in Jesus, who he is and what he's come to do. Her confidence is in Jesus. This is so key for understanding saving faith. Does Martha know that Jesus will raise her brother from the dead? Not yet. Has Martha ever seen someone raised from the dead? Of course not. So where is her confidence at this moment? Not in the circumstances of the situation, not even in the prospect of the situation changing. Her confidence is in the identity of Jesus. 
Before she sees the sign, she trusts the Savior. Before she hears the words, Lazarus, come forth. She believes that life belongs to Jesus, the Son of God. This is is what faith sees, friends. This is what faith sees. Faith sees what is true about Jesus Christ. Perhaps more importantly, this is how faith endures. By looking more to Jesus than to the circumstances around me. You have, you have to see the tension or you miss the point of the faith. Martha doesn't know what's going to happen. She doesn't know that her, that her, her brother is going to be raised from the dead. But on the basis of Jesus' word and on the basis of who Jesus is, she entrusts herself to the Lord. That's faith. All I have is Christ. Her faith then could be summarized as a hopeful confidence in Christ. Come what may, Martha believes that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Faith doesn't see that things will change or might change. Faith doesn't see that things could get better. Faith sees Jesus. And in seeing Jesus, the Christian is secure. And so we're going to end right where we started. The question that overrules all other questions. Do you believe this? For the Christian, there is incredible hope in that question. For it calls you to remember that no circumstance, no despair, no amount of suffering can ever separate you from the resurrection and the life. There's there's assurance in that question for the Christian. Do you believe this? If you're not a Christian today, then this is the question that should occupy you above all other questions. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus lived and died and rose again for the life and salvation of his people? It's the question that overrules all other questions. Do you believe this? And even now, I pray that the Spirit is working right now through God's word to give you the eyes of faith that you will see what is true in Jesus Christ. So as we sing here in just a moment and prepare to receive the supper, I pray that each of us would just meditate upon this question, the question from Jesus to Martha, the question from Jesus to you. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Father, help us now to respond to your word as we ought. Lord, please take these few moments that we've had of meditating upon the scriptures and please bear fruit from them, God. Help us, Lord, to grow strong in faith. Not not faith in the hope of our circumstances changing. Not faith in the hope that things will quote-unquote get better, but faith in Christ. Help our confidence to be in Him. And since He never changes, help us to rest secure in Him. Prepare our hearts as we come to the table in just a moment, God. For Christians present among us today, Lord, we do pray that you would help us even now to examine our own hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.